So as we are reading the chapters, we don't chew candy. Yeah, that's usually record. a good idea. <laughs> it's the last two pieces of candy. Uh-huh. Welcome to the ultimate <laughs> chapter of The Horse and His Boy here on Chronically Narnia, a podcast where we discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter. And at this point, we are in the final chapter of The Horse and His Boy. So this episode is just going to be about this chapter, and then our next episode or two Ooh, might be about the entire experience of the horse and his boy, the whole book from start to finish. But today Whoa. is just going to be focusing on chapter 15, Rabidash the Ridiculous. Um, I am the king's fiddler. Uh, sorry, well, I am the king's poet and two fiddlers, also known as Kristen. And Whoa. this is my co-host... I'm King Loon's doggy hands. Ooh, you should wash those. <laughs> At some point, I should. Also known as? Chris. Sorry, I forgot I had a real name. Do you? <laughs> uh-huh. All right, well, I can just call you all doggy hands. <laughs> I don't know if that would work for the rest of our relationship. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I mean, whatever. Anyway, welcome to the ultimate episode, Kristen. Yeah. It is. I stole, I stole I, it from you. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been building up to this for two weeks now. If you had just dove straight in and done the intro yourself, you might have been able to get there first, but beat you to it. Uh, you always do. Usually. Uh, so, hey, we're on the last chapter. Accurate. And <sighs> I've got so much to talk about. You've got a long story to tell. Um, I've already got two rants prepared. I could Ooh. get a third one going if we really needed some filler. Ready too. I thought one was just about Brie and, you know. That's you another one. one. Uh-huh. You got another? I do. Okay. Of course I've got another one. Well, then we should get started and do our summary, shouldn't we? Indeed. All right. As we're reading the chapters, we will take five sentences out of the chapters and create a summary of the chapter using the chapter's own words. Uh, at least we'll attempt to. So, Chris, why don't you go ahead and read us your five-sentence summary of Chapter 15? Sure. Um, and this was a hard one, um, mm. trying to capture all the, uh, you know, the denouement and the 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 finishing of and tying up all the loose ends. So, mm -hmm. did my best with what I had, um, but this was this was a struggle, uh, just to stick to five. All right, here we go. My son Kor has told me about your adventures together and all your valor. Rabidash was brought before them in chains. Nay, lad, said King Loon. Thou art my heir. The crown comes to thee. Erebus also had many quarrels, and I'm afraid even fights with Kor. But they always made it up again, so that years later, when they were grown up, they were so used to quarreling and making up again that they got married so as to go on doing it more conveniently. <laughs> and there weren't many months in which one or both of them didn't come trotting over the pass to visit their friends at Anvard. There you okay. go. Okay. And we only have one sentence in common. So well, I'll go ahead and read mine now. Go for it. Before they had reached the gate, King Loon came out to meet them not looking at all like Erevis's idea of a king and wearing the oldest of old clothes, for he had just come from making a round of the kennels with his huntsmen and had only stopped for a moment to wash his doggy hands. The hour has struck, said Aslan, and Rabidash saw, to his supreme horror, that everyone had begun to laugh. And he was standing on all fours, and his clothes disappeared, and... Everyone laughed louder and louder because they couldn't help it. For now, what had been Rabidash was simply and unmistakably a donkey. Whoa. And tomorrow, Kor, he added, shalt come over all the castle with me and see the estate and mark all its strengths and weaknesses, for it will be thine to guard when I'm gone. Erebus also had many quarrels, 
and I'm afraid even fights with Core. But they al- always made it up again, so that years later, when they were grown up, they were so used to quarreling and making it up again that they got married so as to go on doing it more conveniently. Mm-hmm. So you didn't even include Bree and Hwen in your summary. Nope, because they're not in the <laughs> chapter. There's what like two sentences about them at all in the chapter. Yeah. There's one about them being uncomfortable that the king is talking to them because they're totally fine with Erebus and Kor, yeah. but not grown-ups talking to them. Yeah. And then there's one about how they each got married but not to each other. Yep. That's it. Like, they came visit. That's, no, they're not even in this chapter to me. Uh-huh. I mean, I was trying to include them and trying not to give two sentences to Rabidash, even though he's the bulk of the chapter. And he he is the title of the yes. chapter. Yes, and the chapter is mainly about him because he's, like, this the center of it, but... Yes, but I, it's, it's also about King Loon and yeah. his unwillingness to just murder the punk. Yeah. It's also about... Core and core and learning from him. Um, also, one of my favorite sentences in any of the Narnia books ever so far. Really? Never taunt a man save when he is stronger than you. Then, as you please. That was my absolute <laughs> favorite sentence. And it's actually something that I was just having a conversation with someone about the other day. Where, like, they were complaining about people being rude about um, president... And I was like, yeah, except that that's always going to be the case. The people who have less power are always going to be able to, like, tease and poke fun at the people with power. But when it goes the other way, it's bullying. Mm -hmm. And so if the president were to say something mean about someone else, that's bullying as opposed to people with no power, you know taunting a man who does have power or is stronger Mm -hmm. so i don't know i just really liked the way that that sentence summed up my feelings that i was just expressing the other day Mm -hmm. and i wrote it down and i think that's going to be my sign off for from now until i get a better one never taunt a man save when he is stronger than you (laughs) there you go i also had another really powerful moment where edmund said Another really powerful quote. I don't know if we want to dive right into that. Well, I mean, but... let's let's do our, our traditional thing where we just go through. I know you want to hop around and get to these these stingers that you like. Uh, whatever. <laughs> um, but no, that I agree with you. That is a good line. Uh, that's as political as we're going to get on this podcast. <laughs> uh, hopefully, uh, <laughs> we already talk about religion. We can't, you know, throw politics into the mix. How dare you? They'll be just become like a morning talk radio show. <laughs> Um, anyway, so, we, uh, Erebus, Bree, and Wynn finally get to Anvard. Yes. They finally meet King Loon. Indeed. Doesn't come off like a king. And, you know, that's an, uh, a fun little comparison moment where, like, the, the contrast between, uh, first meeting King Loon and first meeting the Tisrock. Oh, yeah. We and, do it forever. Yeah. Absolutely. Where Erebus has now met two... Mm-hmm. I mean, at least been in the physical presence of two different rulers. Uh-huh. And she met the Tisrock walking with people carrying lights backwards before him and mm-hmm. all of this gaudy clothes and all of these things. And then all like then we meet King Loon, who mm-hmm. is caring for the pups. Yep. He's out taking care of his dogs with his huntsman. Yeah, got to go wash his doggy hands. Yep. He's wearing ratty clothes. Uh, And so this is a fun little contrast moment here. And I did want to address something just because it it seemed a weird line to me and I wanted to maybe ask you what you think it meant. Um, His his introduction for Erebus here is, Little lady, he said, we bid you very heartily welcome. Uh, If my dear wife were still alive, we could make you better cheer, but could not do it with a better will. Saying that we have the best of will and intentions, but we can't necessarily come make you feel homey and mothered because you don't have, we don't have, my wife has passed. Yeah. So, like, I can make you feel as welcome as I am able to, but I know that you probably would be more comfortable with my wife helping you as opposed to me. Yeah. Um, We never get any context clues or anything that tells us in the book, like, how long his wife's been dead. Is like, you know, presumably uh, Cora's mother. Yeah. Who, you know, you would think he'd be curious about. It's like he met his, he met his real dad, and he's at no point he's just like, hey, what happened to mom, by the way? 
yeah, never gets we, talked about. We don't get the we don't story know. of it. You know, she wasn't on the sh- she wasn't on the ship with him when it went down. No, because he we had been that. kidnapped away. Yeah. So like we have we have no idea, and I think that's a not a plot hole, but it's a weird thing to leave out. A Just little that, bit weird to leave out, especially since we've had so much like talk about core explaining to Erevis his own story and stuff like that as he's learning more about it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Even just a, a little half a sentence to be like. No. She never even gets named. I no. don't believe. She so. does not. <laughs> so. I don't know. The mystery of who uh, Corrin Corrin's mother is. That mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have Queen Lucy then shows up to take Erevis away to get her settled. Yeah. And talk about girly things. Oh yeah. Absolutely. <sighs> they got it. Anyway, uh, uh, sorry. Let's <laughs> yes. so say someone's got to show Erebus where the tampons are kept. But <laughs> okay, yeah, sure, that works. Um, yeah, and then Ere- you know, before we get there, Erebus, you know, tells this story about Cora's bravery and fending off the lion. Oh yes, she says uh, something about how brave Cora is, and the king is just like, "Uh, who said what about a lion?" Uh huh. And Kor had wanted so badly for this story to be known, but hadn't wanted to tell it himself because no. it didn't feel right. Yeah. And now that the story has been told, he wishes that no one had ever heard this story. Yep, the because price of fame. He is just, his story is being told over and over and over again by the king to everybody who will listen. Uh-huh. Hey, let me tell you about that time my son tried to run and scare off Jesus. <laughs> <sighs> yep. Yep. As, uh, that's fun. Uh, anyway, Cor gets his little measure of fame. Um, Lucy comes and whisks Erevis away and is just like, let me show you this room that I've prepared for you. That's my Lucy impression, by the way. I see. Um, I shouldn't ever do that again. Uh, then they have lunch and we get to decide what we do with Rabidash because he's still locked in the dungeon somewhere. Yes. And we get to the meat of this chapter, which is talking about Rabidash and conversations with him and how we're going to punish him and et cetera, et cetera. Your majesty would, ha- and we're, I'm now going to go into my favorite part of this conversation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Your majesty would have a perfect right to strike off his head, said Paradin. Such an assault as he made puts him on a level with assassins. It is very true, said Edmund. But even a traitor may mend. I have known one that did. I I really, really mm-hmm. liked that. Uh-huh. But then uh-huh. we have uh, Darren reply, the king replies, Lucy replies. Uh-huh. And Lucy says, by my counsel, said Lucy, your majesty shall give him another trial. Let him go free on straight promise of fair dealing in the future. It may be that he will keep his word. Maybe apes will grow honest, sister, said Edmund, but by the lion, if he breaks it again, may it be in such time and place that any of us could swap off his head in a clean battle. And I just think that it's funny that not, like, the last thing Edmund said was, oh, even a traitor may mend. I've known one that did. Mm -hmm. And the very next thing he says, oh, maybe apes will grow (laughs) honest, sister. But don't trust him. Don't trust him. Is that a phrase people say? I don't Maybe. know. Is it, is it, are Narnians not known, like, are Narnian apes known to be particularly uh, treacherous and lying? And I, anyway. We, well, I mean, it is interesting because I thought to myself, that's a weird phrase and seems kind of like vaguely racist in the terms of like all the talking animals. But then I thought to myself, in the course. Is, does it not also seem vaguely racist in that it's coming from a white man about a black prince? I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. Even, even if you take the animal thing out of it, it is vaguely racist. Maybe a little bit, but at the same time, I was like, in the books prior, uh, and in this one, we have not encountered any apes in Narnia. Correct. Like there are in all the descriptions of animals and all those scenes that they're portrayed, nothing, nothing apey or monkeyish ever. Like is portrayed or talked about. True. And we have things that are like you know. Also, hum- nothing rabbity until this book. So, like, it kind of just goes. <laughs> yeah. Nothing, nothing, you know. Yeah. So, there were no talking bears in the first book or two, but there were in this one. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I did think that was interesting that this is, like, a saying, but, like, I was like, no, we don't actually see any apes in the books. So. Yeah. Maybe they just have their own little, you know, confined corner of the world because everybody thinks they're liars and doesn't trust them. <laughs> Uh, um, 
Anyway, uh, so we have this argument, and then Rod Rabidash gets brought before them. Yes. Uh, and he's in chains, as your sentence said. Uh huh. And he's uh he's upset. And also, uh, to look at him, anyone would have thought that he had spent the night in a in a terrible dungeon mm-hmm. and not in the very comfortable room, and that he was provided with an excellent supper. Yeah. Because he was so busy sulking. Yep. <laughs> that he basically didn't eat and stamped around the room, roaring and cursing. Yep. I've had those nights. So naturally, he didn't look his best. Yeah. Yeah, and so they bring him out. He is very much not happy. Um, you know, he you know is cursing them. He's yelling at them. You know, challenging the fight, et cetera, et cetera. And he's very confrontational for a man in his position. I think. Indeed, uh, but he, then we have Corin step up and ask, "Father, can I box him? Can I box him, please?" <laughs> and I feel like that's a scene we should have gotten here. Yeah. And just like Corin boxing Rabidash. Yeah, yeah. That that could have been the. Uh, just real quick, like the culmination of con- everything. Have like a 12-year-old boy just go yeah. up and punch out this prince. And yep. that could be why he's Rabidash the Ridiculous. You know what? If anybody could do it, Corin could. <laughs> uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into his new nickname at the end of the chapter. Oh, but, yeah. Man. Um, anywho, we, we have all these arguments. Uh, and then Rabidash is just like, well, if you, you know, touch a hair on my head, like I'll drown you all in Markenlander blood and et cetera, et cetera. And they'll tell stories about the travesties inflicted upon your land for a thousand years and all this uh, this threatening stuff. But then, who shows up? Aslan. Uh-huh. And uh, everybody kind of freezes. Aslan saunters in, kind of out of nowhere. He just appears. Yep. Uh, Typical. You know, after after the battle's over. Typical. He's like, oh, oh, you guys already solved all the problems. Well, let me just come in and offer my two cents here. Uh <laughs> Well, I I don't know about that. <laughs> uh-huh. He jumped in and killed the queen in the last battle that we in- involved him. Yeah, true. But like that, he was she was an alien, right? You know, Aslan just doesn't get involved in politics and the uh, you know local politics. Of course, he shouldn't. <laughs> anyway, he doesn't. You know have a child get stranded in one country in order to have, and then force him into meeting another person in order to get political information that's important in order to run across the desert all night in order to then convey that information to the kid. Yeah, he doesn't get involved in any political stuff on the local level, not at all. No, 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 no. That was was all Shasta. Um, So Aslan comes in, and then we have this really weird scene where Rabidash is like, I know the right response to this. I'm going to make a weird face and waggle my ears around. Which apparently is horrifying <laughs> to anybody who has any contact with down in Kallerman. If uh, he has power uh-huh. to to literally just kill them, then yeah, of course it's going to be scary if they're like uh, expressing anger at you. The bravest had trembled when he made these faces, and ordinary people had fallen to the floor, and sensitive people often fainted. <laughs> Uh, and everyone here just kind of thought he looked like he might be sick. I mean, when you're trying to look angry, I, I, I don't, I can't really think of a situation in which, like, you look more intimidating by waggling your ears. Like, I I don't know. I tried to picture this being scary, <laughs> and I couldn't get there, but apparently it wasn't really the face. It was all the power. And obviously, like, everybody thinks he looks stupid, ridiculous even. And, you know, Aslan obviously isn't swayed uh, by the shark-like grin. And he calls out Aslan. He's like, you're the foul fiend of Narnia. Demon! Yep. But I'm descended from Tash. I'm going to come down and, like, destroy this country and et cetera, et cetera. Lightning in the shape of scorpions shall be rained on you. Uh Uh-huh. And then Aslan says, and I wanted to read this quote, which I think is the coolest thing he says in any of the books. Okay. uh, Period. Which is, uh... The doom is nearer now. It is at the door. It has lifted the latch. Which is a great line. Yes. Uh, and, you know, if if they ever get around to making this movie, <laughs> where they finish the uh, Chronicles of Narnia movie series, which got stuck in development nonsense, uh, uh-huh. that should be in there. You want that line in there? Yeah. It's right up there with, uh, you know, don't cite the deep magic to me, which oh, that yes. whole thing. 
The doom is nearer now. It is at the door. It has lifted the latch. Yes, especially very... because Aslan <laughs> is voiced by... Uh, Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. That one. Yep. I won't do a Liam Neeson impression. Impersonation, impression. I tried to say both of those words at the same time. An impersonation. An impersonation. Um, yeah, and then Rabidash keeps shrieking, and then Aslan's just like, the hour struck, turns him into a donkey, because apparently Aslan's a fan of, like, ironic punishments. Yep. And, and he says that. that you have appealed to Tash. Mm-hmm. Um... Now hear me, Rabidash, said Aslan. Justice shall be mixed with mercy. You shall not always be an ass. You have appealed to Tash, and in the temple of Tash you shall be healed. So he has to go to, ta- go to Tash's temple in Toshban in the middle of the mm-hmm. great feast of the year. Stand up in front of everyone, and he will turn into a donkey. However, he can never go more than 10 miles away from that temple in Tashban, or he will turn permanently back into a donkey. Yeah. So this is assuring that he will never do another attack, or he'll permanently become a donkey again. Mm-hmm. But also, because it has to happen in the middle of the autumn feast, everyone in Tashban is going to be there and see this happen. That's the clever bit. That this donkey gets turned into Rabidash. Yeah. And that he has returned to his form and he can never leave. Yeah. Uh, and I think since, you know, we see Aslan for the first time in um, Magician's Nephew, and like he springs onto the scene and he creates Narnia and all that, like, this is the greatest demonstration we've seen of Aslan's power since then. Where he's just like, I'm going to curse you forever. Yeah. And just, like, very casually, like, turns this guy into a donkey. Yeah. And, like, most of the things he does in the books are very subtle and not very overt. And then this one, he's just coming in and being like, nope, you're you're cursed to be a donkey forever. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just, like, it kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, It's fun punishment, though. Like, uh, and then uh, turns into the donkey. Uh, Aslan prescribes what he has to do. And then Lewis has to jump in and say, like, and here to get him out of the way, I'd better finish off the story about Rabidash. Just, like, this moment of clarity where he's like, oh, I know I've been writing about this way too long in the final chapter. <laughs> huh. I should move on and talk about something else. Yep. Who's, like, maybe a main character in the books. Maybe we should talk about Bree. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, but Rabidash, it does turn out that Rabidash was, in fact, our uh, antagonist. Yep. Um. Sort of. Yeah, kind of, sort of. Like, he, I don't know, has chapters that he's more antagonistic than others. Uh, but yeah, we can we can at least say the book has one at this point. Uh, and he is, you know, in public, known as Rabidash the Peacemaker. He goes yes, and has why? the most... Why does he want... Why is he Rabidash the Peacemaker? Because he has the most peaceful reign of all the Tisrocks. Why? Because he can't leave. He can't leave, and he can't entrust anyone else to go battle because then they might get more recognition fame and recognition and might Mm -hmm. rise up against him and steal his throne yep so he has to keep everything nice and peaceful yep this was aslan's plan all along but once he dies what's he known as what what even try the local (laughs) library in a good history of callerman to Uh find out what would he be called now he would be called as the chapter title might suggest, rabbit ass so ridiculous. Whoa. I know. What happens if you're being like, <laughs> oh, a little unruly or unusually stupid in class at school? What, what, the, what might you get called? Is this the new formatting our podcast is going to take? Where you do this call and response thing where you ask me rhetorical <laughs> questions about what's in the chapter? Is it a second <laughs> rabbit ash? Yeah. Is that a way of calling someone dumb? Apparently. Interesting. Because he becomes a phrase. Yep. Oh, man. Um, so. I only do that when I find it kind of like the way that I'm I'm mimicking this, this style shift of the storytelling. Uh-huh. Like this whole paragraph is just like, yeah, no, we got to get his story out of the way. So I'm just going to tell you real quick that if yeah. you go look up in the library, A History of Kellerman, you're going to find out more about Rabidash. So we'll just cover the basics. Yeah. But if you want to know more, go look up a history. Yeah. Try no your local library. Makes sense. Uh, but then Rabidash is dealt with, and, uh, specifically the language it says in the chapter is that everyone was very glad that he'd been disposed of, which is very ominous. I know, that was uh, such <laughs> a weird phrasing for that. 
It's it like, okay. Was. Um, and then they can party. And then there's a feast and there's the celebration of like them winning the battle and like Chorus come home and we have like fiddlers. We have poets, which Erebus and Kor aren't excited about because like they're only familiar with that terrible Calarmine poetry, but this is like actual good poetry. And like there's storytelling involved. And you know, this is the other moment that Bree appears in the chapter because Bree gets to tell a story. And we have, uh, you know, the tale of where Stormness' head came from. Yes. Uh, and that whole thing. And Mount Pyre. Yeah. And... and then Lucy got to tell the story about how they all came to Narnia in the first place. Which also doesn't make any sense because this is not that far ahead of the time where they go back through the wardrobe in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where they kind of go, huh, what is this thing here in the middle of the woods? It's got a light on top of it. You know, I think I remember this is called a lamppost. Mm-hmm. But, like, clearly they're still telling these stories in festival and and dinner parties. And, like, they clearly remember these things. Like, yeah. you don't just forget that. It's, like, I mean, I could understand how you could forget details about it if you just forgot about it and never told the story of how you came to Narnia. Uh-huh. But, like, she's telling their story. So it seems a little inconsistent with the way that we ultimately come back to them. Yeah. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in the in the White Stag chapter. Yeah, so but. I don't know, not not a huge plot hole, but uh, yeah, they tell the you know, stories about the alien planet Earth and all the things they have there, like you know, cabbies, crazy. Uh, <laughs> um, and then uh, we have this conversation between Kor and uh, King Loon. Loon, why am I blanking here? Uh, come up where it is revealed that Kor is the one who's going to inherit the throne. And he's really upset about that. He is. He is. But we're twins. We must be the same age. Uh Uh-huh. Nay. He he very much does not want to be royalty of any kind. Nope. But also, you know, he is 20 minutes older than Corrin. Yeah. And Corrin's response to this is, Hooray! Hooray! I shan't have to be king. I shan't have to be king. I'll always be a prince. It's princes have all the fun. Yep. Corin's real excited about it. And then, uh, I mean... And the, and the king says, and that's truer than thy brother knows, Cor. Yeah, uh, there's a little, little mini roast of Corin that goes down here. Where, yeah, there is. Uh, where Loon is just like, uh... I'm kind of glad your... you came back so that he doesn't have to be king. Yeah, and, and King Loon's just like, Corin's elder by a full 20 minutes you are and is better too let's hope though that's no great mastery and then looks over at Corin <laughs> and she's like geez dad yeah it's been like harsh yep I mean I, I just found out the slave boy is going to be king and like pff, now you're now you gotta throw salt in that wound the king's under the law for it's the law makes him a king has, has no, no more, power. more power to start away from thy crown than any sentry from his post yeah you can't run from this core this is yours yep and uh yeah so that's that's ultimately his destiny he's going to be king of this land uh we don't really get to hear about anything that he does spoilers uh he has a cool kid though but before we get there apparently he does apparently he has a powerful son who's got a got a nickname uh i do want to jump into um Corin's kind of response to this whole thing because Corin gets really really excited that he doesn't have to be king and he's like I'm going to be a prince princes have all the fun huzzah he can go fight and round the world still yes and um, we get a little wrap up about what Corin does as he becomes a yes, but as the two man. boys are going upstairs after this conversation Corin's just like you know in response to Cor's continual complaining if you say another word about it I'll I'll knock you down so, despite the fact that Corrin's really excited about not having to be king, he doesn't want to hear Cor complaining about it. Yeah, well, <laughs> Cor is just like, he asks Corrin again if there's nothing that could be done, and Corrin is just like, shut up. <laughs> I'm going to knock you down. Yeah. And uh, and they keep fighting, and they grow up as brothers, and they're, you know. Yeah, and they keep disagreeing and fighting and quarreling, but never once did Cor beat Corrin in a fist fight. Yep. I mean, apparently Kor becomes a better swordsman. Kor gets and knocked like, down. And like the deadliest one in battle, but Corin is always the best boxer in the land. Yes. And that's how he got his name of Corin Thunderfist. Yes. 
I was surprised you didn't introduce yourself as Corin Thunderfist. That's what I was expecting you to introduce as. You know, no, that's the name of my next D&D character. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, it's going to be a monk. What about what about his great exploit against the, the lapsed bear of Stormness? <laughs> so I didn't want to talk about... Uh, I did want to talk a little bit about this. Because I feel like... A, there's something to be said here the, about, you know, the world building and the culture in Narnia. Because we had the last bear, lapsed bear of Stormness, which was really a talking bear, but had gone back to wild bear habits. Which is something that specifically <sighs> in The Magician's Nephew, Aslan warns the Narnians about. Yeah. Don't go back to their ways or you will become dumb animals again. Yeah. What are wild bear habits, though? What did he do? I mean, like, like he clearly wasn't living in community and talking and being a part of the Narnian community. He probably went off on his own in his own little bear cave and didn't talk to anybody and yeah. was wild again. Yeah. What is, I, I know it's, it might be pretty obvious, but like... Maybe he ate a talking beaver. <laughs> I did that once, wouldn't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so I do want to get into a little bit about what we think the you know, the human analogy would be here. Because, like, I, I do feel like this says something interesting. Because, like, all these talking animals, like, they have culture, they have civility, like, they're, you know, they're mannered in Narnia. But at any moment, they can just decide to go back to their wild ways yeah. and stop being, you know, in the upper echelon of society. So what's, I guess, what's our human equivalent here? Because we, you know, you don't worry about people just, like, becoming feral savages who, you know, go and throw off the castings of civilization and yeah but there is a certain amount of it that is this analog for civilization this analog for being in community like i was saying and mm -hmm. some of those kind of different aspects where someone becomes feared by the community a bear is a predator you know like obviously specifically in this case a bear mm -hmm. um but then we still even have like corin going up to the lair on the narnian side of stormness one winter to box the bear yeah. And in the end, it couldn't see out of one of its eyes and became a reformed character. So apparently, if you do <laughs> lose your your civility, you can have it beat back into you by core and Thunderfist. Yep, and you get blinded, but you yep. get better. Yep. <laughs> uh, and then we wrap up everybody else. Erevis and Kor get married eventually. Yep, so as to uh, go on fighting more conveniently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's the picture of marriage that we get uh, painted in this book. And after King Loon's death, they made a good king and queen of Arkenland. Not just, you know, just a good king and queen. And Ram, the great, the most famous of all the kings of Arkenland, was mm -hmm. their son. We never hear anything about him, do we? I don't know. Do we? I don't think so. Okay. I thought not. Uh, but let's pause real quick here. Because I also do want to talk about, and we'll, this is a thing I want to get more into probably in the Steve wrap-up episode we're going to have, but in one of our wrap-up episodes for this book is, you know, just this quick little quip that Lewis makes about, like, oh, they wanted to fight more conveniently, they got married, and wanted to go into the picture of relationships and marriages that we have uh, in the book so far. Yes. Um, and so we start in Magician's Nephew, and we have the marriage of uh, Uncle Andrew and Aunt Letty. I th no, they're brother and sister. They're Aren't not they? married. Oh, no. The That's, only marriage. It's been too long. We have two marriages, two, we have three couples in that book. We have Polly's parents, who are only briefly mentioned. Mm -hmm. We have Diggory's parents, whose mother is sick and his father is away. Yes. And then we have the cabbie and his wife, Helen. Yeah. yeah. And so um, those are the three kind of marital relationships that we see. I totally forgot they were related. Oh. It's been too long since we read that book, apparently. Yeah, no, no, no. The aunt and the uncle are uh, brother and sister. Yeah, nobody would marry Uncle Andrew. What are we talking about? Yeah, get, um, <laughs> get it right. Yeah, uh, and so we have Cabby and Helen. Cab, uh, Hen Frank. Frank, Frank. Keep wanting to call him Henry for some reason. So we had uh, Frank and Helen uh, being that example of, like, the good, godly, wholesome marriage. In book two, we have Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Yes. And like they're the, the the parent figures. They're the they're the parental figures since the kids don't have functional parents uh, at all. And you know, Diggory never gets married to anyone because you know he never got over seeing that uh, 
incredibly beautiful queen. It yeah. was just like no earthly woman is going to measure up to her. No, never. Why Why bother? <laughs> uh, and so we have that example. And in this book, we don't really get a picture of any kind of healthy relationship. We It's, it's all like, sibling relationship. It's all sibling. I mean, friends. we have the closest we get is like uh, Lassar Lane talking about her rich husband and how she's, you know, living the dream life, just yeah. riding on the coattails of this rich dude that she got married to. And like the story about, you know, the arranged marriage that Erebus escapes. Uh, and Rabidash going off yeah, to, to kidnap to, Susan. To kidnap Susan. Yeah. And like all these examples of like dysfunctional relationships between people. And then we end with, oh, and yeah, they liked fighting, so they got married. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's a, why I married you. Uh-huh. I enjoyed fighting with you because you fight fair. They had a they had a real cool kid, though. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I did think that was interesting that uh, there is no, like, example of that relationship in this book. There is no, like, parental unit figures. There's no, like, family stand-in. Except it's that all just... Quinn and Bree are kind of... I that's mean, the they had we get, Quinn yeah. step in to protect... In a maternal fashion, yeah. Erevis from killing herself, mm-hmm. and we have Bree who is teaching Core how to do all of these things when he's Shasta. Yeah, that he will need later, but and doesn't even realize that he's learning from. Yeah, Bree, all of the ways to ride a horse nobly and all of these things. Yeah, uh, yeah, and so Bree and Huen get married, not to each other, unless we, unless we think that. No, no, no. They, do they get married to other horses? I want to know more about this. Like, do they, you know, Probably. Meet, meet some nice centaurs? Like, I don't know how horses work. <laughs> it's like, how does interspecies marriage and relationships work in Narnia? Like, all these questions. Uh, is that a thing? Is it is okay? That is it frowned upon? I mean, we've only ever seen Mr. and Mrs. Beaver as an example of an animal couple, but, you know. True. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> they would come back over the past... Uh, Pretty much every month is what it sounds like to visit Erebus and Kor. Um, but we do not have any resolution whatsoever to whether or not Bree actually became a wiser horse as the previous chapter suggested because nope. we don't have any information whatsoever about Bree's experience going to Narnia. And like we've we've tried to humble him we've had him called out on all of his pride and all Correct. of his worries and all of these different things and yet like the only growth he had is that he actually was willing to go with his tail still short we still don't know whether or not he gets to narnia and narnian horses don't roll and he rolls anyway or he doesn't roll ever again or he gets there and all the narnian horses are rolling all over the place anyway and he's just like y'all need to calm down like (sighs) we don't know like we have no idea nope because it's just not important to actually resolve whether or not brie actually did grow as a character I mean, he gets... Uh, I mean, he's only half of the title of the book. <laughs> he integrates well enough to get married at some point. Well, he does that, so... Mm-hmm. And lives a long, happy life in Narnia. Apparently. But yeah, it was disappointing that we didn't get to see that. Like, I was like, I was sure that was going to be a scene at some point where, like, he has I a role in the hay would. with a Narnian horse. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, that's completely missing, you know... Gwen has her... That's what this angry note on the bottom of the page is. <laughs> but do Narnian horses roll? <laughs> um, yeah, and we don't really see anything happen with Gwen at all in this chapter either. It's like, she doesn't even get a story to tell. She's just kind of there. And then yeah. she gets married eventually. Oh, well, she's that's gone. Cool. Um, you had a second rant, though. Oh, no, it we... was about the Narnian horses. And <sighs> then also the getting married more conveniently and... This kind of idea that, like, for a, for for an author who we've expressed quite a bit in our previous guest episodes about his own relationships and his own marital experience, like, yeah. this is a very odd take for him, considering as, like, the person he married was, like, basically someone he was trying to protect from an abuser as opposed to someone that he actually, like, you know, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure at some point he fell in love with her and had an enjoyable relationship. But like, mm-hmm. it's not like he chose someone that he had fun quarreling with. Like, 
Yeah. And, and, like, we don't know much about him in any kind of relationship that isn't very, like, maternal and weird uh-huh. or protective and fathering. Yeah. So, I don't know. It just seemed a little strange for him to make this kind of joke at the end of the book, which is clearly for the parents, you know, like, this isn't a joke for kids <sighs> to uh-huh. be like, well, they, they, they enjoyed fighting and quarreling so much that they got married. Uh-huh. Like... Also, not a good image to put out there. Like, yeah, kids, you fight with this person. Yep, you're we probably going to marry him. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. it's. It, I mean, like, and it is important that it's like the fighting and they made up again. Like, yeah. that they always made up again is the part that actually, like, shows a maturity in their relationship that could develop into marriage. Uh-huh. But, like, anyway, I just thought it was, a, like, a little odd coming from this particular source. Yeah. With what we know about C.S. Lewis's marital experience. Yeah. We should do some more research on that and, you know, get really into it in the wrap-up episodes so we can, like, really, like, beg for that cease and desist letter from the Lewis estate. <laughs> I'm going to see if we can get one. We'll be successful. Um, <laughs> anyway, if there's nothing else you want to say, we're going to have a pretty long uh, Chopped and Screwed segment. So yes. if you want to right. get into that real quick. So... Throughout the um, books, at the end of each chapter, we take um, five sentences out of the chapter and try to create a new story with them. So a little five-sentence short story using the sentences from this chapter. Um, I've been doing a new one every chapter. Throughout this entire book, Chris has been trying to write one continuous story. And since this is the last chapter, mm-hmm. he's going to read us his entire 75-sentence story yes. that he created over the course of this book. Uh, a and... little shorter than that because I, I, I cheated. Uh, I'm revealing this now on the podcast, live on air. Uh, this last chapter was so hard. <laughs> Because I feel like I did everything I needed to do in the first 14 chapters, and this one was so hard to find any kind of sentences that worked for me. So I took one sentence out of this chapter to do the ending of the story with. I did not do five because I could not find five sentences that got me anywhere. Okay, whatever. So I'm, I'm, I'm breaking it. Story. I know. I'm never doing story. This. I'm never doing this again. It was a pain. <laughs> Next book will be back to normal. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and read mine first because okay. Chris has got this long thing to do. Yeah. Um, so this is Narnia Chopped and Screwed, and here is my rewrite. Demon! shrieked the prince. Can I box him? <laughs> Your doom is very near, but you may still avoid it. I shan't have to be king. If you say another word about it, I'll, I'll knock you down. <laughs> He's really riding on uh, Prince Corrin as, like, the best character here and uh, creating a little story about him. <laughs> well, I think he needs a spinoff book. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I just liked this idea of, like, uh, a prince who doesn't want to be king, so he's willing to go fight a demon in order to avoid it. Yeah. This is this is going to be our, uh, our Patreon. We'll be talking about writing, like, an adult Narnia novel. And I feel like the premise should be Prince Corrin somehow you know in his adulthood finds his way back through the wardrobe and ends up in uh (laughs) in modern day england and he just goes around and fights people yeah and like the hijinks and wacky adventures he gets into all right um all right so i'll go ahead and do mine Uh, i decided to do it in this last episode because we're having uh next couple episodes we'll have guests on and i don't want to waste their time (laughs) (laughs) uh and i'm you know more okay wasting Kristen's because she signed on for it but I'm just going to read through my whole story. And uh, I did say that in this last episode, I did expand a little bit more on where I was going with this. So if you have questions about my process or what I was going for or why I made that dumb decision, feel free to ask it uh, as I'm going through. But I'll offer some some commentary at the end. Um, well, actually, you know what? Scratch that. I'm going to preface this by saying something that you, you know, this is the lens you should view this through. You don't get to interpret it your own creative way. Okay. Um, but... Where I was going with this was I wanted to turn it into, you know, a love story because I'm a hopeless romantic and that's what I do. And so I started this out where I wanted to do kind of like a gender and class bend and kind of mess around with the stations of all the characters. So the, my concept going into this was Shasta, instead of being a slave boy, was going to be some sort of noble prince. 
you know, because he's not at all. That's a total reversal of his character. Shocking. Um, but he was he was starting out as a noble, and he and Shasta was basically taking the place in the story of of Erebus. Mm-hmm. Um, Bree, I wanted to have as a slave girl. So instead of the talking horse, we have Bree, who is you know uh, a servant or some kind of like handmaiden to a noble lady. And she's in a much lower station socially than uh, Shasta is. Uh, Erevis, I gender bent and had as a uh, a male also noble um, who is in a lower station than Shasta is, but also falls for Brie, okay. this slave girl. And so it's a you know this lonely poor girl has these he, these two wealthy attractive men going after her. Ooh. <laughs> Uh, because apparently she's just that cool. Uh, and I couldn't really find a place to fit Huynh in, like, which is good because Huynh barely shows up at all. But, like, that was my idea between having those three characters and this kind of love triangle that, that develops and them both vying for her affections and what happens here. Okay. So that's, that's kind of where I went with it. The only other thing I want to preface saying is that in the very, very beginning, I had this idea that Brie was also going to be some sort of, like, magical creature from Narnia. And she was going to be, like, a shapeshifter or something and occasionally, like, took the form of a horse. Okay. But I decided not to go with that. So I have a couple of lines that reference something like that, but I just never went anywhere with it. So. Okay. Anyway, all that being said, uh, I'll go ahead and read my thousand-word short story of The Horse and His Boy. Your 71-sentence rewrite. Yeah. Yeah. Can I call you Bree? All these years I have been a slave to humans, hiding my true nature and pretending to be dumb and witless like their horses. But why not run away with me? But as I intend to do all the directing on this journey, you'll please keep your hands to yourself. I suppose anyone can fall, said Shasta. It was near noon the following day when Shasta was wakened by something warm and soft moving over his face. As they walked, Bree said, Shasta, I'm ashamed of myself. This is my escape just as much as yours. At least, if there's been stealing, you might just as well say I stole him. And when I learned who she was, being delighted with her beauty and discretion, I became inflamed with love, and it appeared to me that the sun would be dark to me if I did not marry her at once. How could you be getting married at your age? Shasta turned very red, though it was hardly light enough for the others to see this, and felt snubbed. Shasta thought it had been much pleasanter when he and Bree were on their own. But Bree had two reasons against this. Shasta tried to get out of the way and make Bree go back. And then someone else jostled him from the side, and in the confusion of the moment, he lost a hold of Bree. But he had no time to think of that before the most beautiful lady he had ever seen rose from her place and threw her arms around him, kissed him, saying, Oh, Corin, Corin, how could you? Nothing like this had ever happened to Shasta in his life before. And Shasta said nothing in answer because he couldn't think of anything to say that would not be dangerous. Who are you? said the boy in a whisper. And of course you remember you have promised to come for a whole week to stay with me for the summer festival, and there'll be bonfires and all-night dances of fawns and dryads in the heart of the woods, and who knows? He was a little worried about Erebus and Bree waiting for him at the tombs. What woke him was a loud crash. These last stands in a house make good stories, but nothing ever came of them. Now that Shasta knew he would have to spend the night alone, it was getting darker every minute, he began to like the look of this place less and less. He was wakened suddenly by a noise he had never before heard. Then his heart gave a great leap, for he recognized them as Bree and Huynh. A dozen different plans went through his head, all wretched ones, and at last he fixed on the worst plan of all. It's just the sort of thing that Erevis would do. And Erevis couldn't help looking up to see what Lasaraline looked like now, that she was married and a very great person indeed. I hope no one heard you when you shouted out to me like that, said Erevis. They gave it up and lay still, panting a little. Is it safe? said Erevis at last, in the tiniest possible whisper. It was fatal. I must have her. 
The cool, placid voice in which he spoke these words made Erebus's blood run cold. You could say that I did it without your knowledge and against your will and without your blessing, being constrained by the violence of my love and the impetuosity of my youth. For I must have her as my wife, though she shall learn a sharp lesson first. This very night and in this hour I will take the two hundred horse and ride across the desert. Erebus looked round and there, right enough, was Shasta who had come out of hiding the moment he saw the groom going away. Erebus decided it was no occasion for mercy. Sorry, Bree, he gasped. No, said Bree very slowly. But in the end, she had to give in to Erebus. Aren't you well, Bree, dear, said Erebus. Bree muttered something that no one could hear. Shasta, half mad with horror, managed to lurch toward the brute. He had never done anything like this in his life before and hardly knew why he was doing it now. Shasta was marvelous. No one ever saw anything more terrible or beautiful. The only sound was a steady drip-drip from the branches of the trees. Presently he came to a place where the road divided into two, yet he felt glad. After all, said Shasta, this road is bound to get somewhere. Your Royal Highness, said Thornbun, drawing him aside, our march today will bring us through the pass and right to your Royal Father's castle. And I couldn't help hearing your plans. I'd like to see your Highness do it, said the dwarf. But he hadn't been thinking of doing so at all, and began to get a most uncomfortable prickly feeling in his spine. It was a longer walk than Shasta wanted at that moment, and his legs had begun to feel very shaky before they came out from the trees onto Bear Hillside. What came next surprised Shasta as much as anything that had ever happened to him in his life. "'By the mane, my old master and Rodden,' said Bree. "'Poor, brave little fool.' His sword was knocked clean out of his hand pretty soon. Your Tarkan's down, Bree. She saw a mere boy. Then she looked up and saw what sort of person this prince was. There's something I've got to say at once. I think I feel a bit scared, said Kor. So I do, answered Bree. And after King Loon's death, they made a good king and queen in Arkenland. And Ram the Great, the most famous of all the kings of Arkenland, was their son. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> I actually got really into that in the middle, like especially around the Tarkans downline. That I got really into it. Uh huh. Um, we do need to move the mic back. Yes. All right, we should be reset now, and people should be able to hear me again. Hey, look, you're on this podcast as well. I've rejoined the podcast. <sighs> nice. Um. Anyway, so that was my whole story. It's choppy in places. Like, I had a good run for a few chapters, but, like, it's... It was hard. It was... It came together... (laughs) It came together a Uh lot better than I thought it was going to. Mm -hmm. Like, hearing you read it all in one go, I did not expect it to be that smooth. Nor did I. (laughs) (laughs) I was surprised by by how well it went. Like, yeah, I did what I had with what I could. I'm not going to do this for the next book. No, yeah, but it was was definitely... Fun to hear your story come out of that, though. Uh-huh. Like, I'd actually really like you to flush that out as, like, the outline of a story and then create an actual, like, write your book off of it or something. hmm That could be your, uh, you know, Patreon thing. That's how I make money, my trashy romance novels. Yeah, do it. Do it. It's Narnia fan fiction. Yep. <laughs> Anyway, um, so with that, uh, the last part of what we normally do on the podcast is that we do a rate and review type section yes. um, where Chris will give us his closing arguments, final thoughts, etc. on the chapter and rate the chapter on a scale from one to five punches from Corin. <laughs> Whoa, five punches from Corin Thunderfist. Oh, yeah. Who could survive that? Not a bear. (laughs) All right. Um, So I don't want to get way too hard into it because I feel like it's hard to talk about this chapter in a vacuum without talking about the rest of the book. Yeah, we're we're going to do that for two episodes. So just the chapter itself. It's fine. Um, It wraps up everything. Uh, I feel like way too much of it is focused on Rabidash and what happens with him. Like, we could have had a cutaway scene. Like, we could have done the thing with, like, Aslan and Rabidash. That was great. 
I just feel like all the explanations and the arguments and the discussion about him and like the moral dilemma of what to do with Rabidash took up too much of it because like he's not really important here. Like we defeated him already and it's weird to focus so much of like the, you know, what is basically the, the last chapter and epilogue of the book all in one. It's weird to focus so much of that on what happens to the antagonist. Um, yeah, a little bit. As, you know, especially when he doesn't even really get, like, a redemption story. Like, there's no real lesson here. Rabidash doesn't develop as a character at all. Like, But he does become the peacemaker because yeah. of his own selfishness. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that I'd knock off some points for. Uh, other than that, uh, negatives, I would agree with Kristen here that we should have had more of a focus on Bree and Huynh, especially Bree, since he's one of the two titular characters of the book. Uh, and for the way the title is written of being like a horse and his boy, again, not getting in too much into the, the book and the problems with it, but I feel like Bree should have gotten more from it. Yeah. And I feel like at a certain point he just kind of stops being a character and, eh, and barely gets a mention here. Still better than Huynh, who, you know, gets mentioned once. Uh, and so I'm a little sad about the, they, them not having a proper resolution to their stories, Kor and Erebus, sure. Uh, they have completed character arcs. Everything wraps up with them. Um, and we have a happy ending. It's a comedy. It ends in a wedding. Yay. Yay! Um, so yeah, I would say not the best chapter in this book, but I don't feel like, other than the horse thing, there's anything that it's sorely missing. I feel like, you know, I'm satisfied with it as an ending. Okay. So I'm gonna say... Whew. Hmm. Like three and a half, three, three point seven five punches from Corn Thunderfist. How, maybe how not. do you get three quarters of a punch? Uh, I mean, he, <laughs> he 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 pulls the punch a little bit and he's like, you know, doesn't follow through with it. Okay. Uh -huh. Okay. <laughs> anyway, there you go. Okay. Cool. Your thoughts, Kristen? Um, I give this chapter amended traitor. Cool. There you go. I mean, uh -huh. I've said pretty much everything I have to say on the positive and negative side. Um, I would really do appreciate the fact that Erevis ends this story getting to be a somebody uh -huh. when she was well prepared to be a nobody from the beginning and that yes. her actions and her willingness to leave her home country and even essentially betray her home country by communicating this information she heard from the Tisrock and Rabidash Correct. to King Loon. Like, the fact that all of that paid off for her and she was rewarded for it. I, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, so with that said, this has been Chapter 15 of The Horse and His Boy. Uh, in our next episode, we will have a guest on. We will be discussing the entire book, getting some of our Whoa. final thoughts on the book. Um, overall opinions and thoughts, um, maybe some more random vocabulary and all of that fun stuff. Uh -huh. um, so with that said, you can follow up with us or communicate with us uh, on Facebook and Instagram at Chronically Podcast. You can um, give us your five-sentence summaries at Chronically Pod on Twitter, or you can email us your fan art of Rabidash as a donkey. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you can also give us money at <laughs> patreon.com slash chronically podcast where you get absolutely nothing in return, but you know, some love from us. Um, so with all of that said, never taunt a man save when he is stronger than you. Then, as you please. Don't forget to wash your doggy hands. And <laughs> don't forget to wash your doggy <laughs> hands. Thank you for joining us. Have a good one. Let me tell you about that time my son tried to run and scare off Jesus. <laughs> yep. Lucy comes and whisks Erebus away and is just like, let me show you this room that I've prepared for you. That's my Lucy impression, by the way. I see. Um, I shouldn't ever do that again.
etc., etc. And he's very confrontational for a man in his position, I think. Indeed. Uh, but he, then we have Corin step up and ask, Father! Can I box him? Can I box him? Please! <laughs> and I feel like that's a scene we should have gotten here. Yeah. So I did want to talk about... Uh, <laughs> I did want to talk a little bit about this. 